continuing with our contemplation of uh, the practice. Practice of uh, steadying the heart. Noticing that sometimes our heart is, uh, perhaps seems more gathered, more centered, more undisturbed by the various sensory impingements, various sounds, sights, thoughts, where sometimes we seem more caught up, more distracted. Tanisra last night was uh, bringing to our attention the, the Buddha's reflections around that which hinders us when it's not understood, that which can obstruct us from truly being here, fully being here. Being here, you know, well. When these uh, hindrances subside, or when the heart is not obsessed by them, not caught up in them, it is said that then our natural state of mind is samadhi. That's the natural state, to be where we are, to be unified, to be gathered, to be present, to have access to the uh, clarity, the luminosity, the peacefulness, the refreshment of a, of a composed heart. But what tends to happen is that we get, uh, we get confused and we get caught up and, and obsessed. And not to make an additional problem, as Tennis was mentioning last night, about these hindrances. Not to start worrying, oh, I'm hindered, I'm hindered, I'm doubly, triply, quadruply. Have all five of them. But to, to remember, you know, these hindrances when unconscious, when we're unconscious to them, yes, then we're imprisoned. We're sick, in a sense. We're a slave. When we're unconscious to the true nature of these movements of the body-mind, we're in debt. We're in perilous territory. But when there is some recollection, consciousness about this movement of a sense-desire, that which is streaming out for a pleasing hit, pleasing contact, out there somewhere. When we're conscious of aversion, that recoiling, battling, desire to get rid of something, some sensation, some circumstance, some person, Or when we're aware of heaviness, lethargy, dullness, or aware of worry, fretting, 
the mind not settling anywhere, restlessness. Or when, when we're aware of compulsive, obsessive doubt in search of a magical answer. As if, when, when we're unconscious to the nature of doubt, we have this sense that an answer is all we need. We just need an answer. As if an answer is really going to solve it all. An answer. This, this doubt is not sure about this, what about that? And it paralyzes us when we're unconscious. But when we're conscious of all these streams, as Ajahn Chah would say, they are our teachers or our sharpening stone. He said it's a sharpening stone for our sort of wisdom because we, there's friction there. Unconscious nature of these is that we get swept into identifying with them as me. Then when, 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 when desire hits the mind and there's the idea of wanting to be somewhere else, it's me, or aversion. It's me, or heaviness. Can't go on anymore. It's just too heavy. No way to practice in this weight. It's me. Restlessness, worry, fretting, not settling, it's me entangled in not knowing the answer, not knowing the answer. What should I do? Should I do it this way? Should I do it? Is it even right for me to be doing this at all? This might not even be the right time at all. I'm not quite sure what I should be doing. Not, it's me, this the idea that if I just had an answer, then we are imprisoned, in debt, a slave, perilous territory robbed of any opportunity of being able to taste the secret of what that turning point for the Buddha to be on that uh, night that he had the childhood memory of being under the rose apple tree. And there was all the swirling of the activity of the world, and it just, it was there, but there was just withdrawing from it. Let it be there. He didn't have to build a wall, throw stones, stupid festival, waste of time. Just let it be. Just. Letting it be, withdrawing, and savoring with the innocence of a child, the lack of sophistication of a child, the lack of all kinds of views and opinions of a child, allowed himself to be here. Oh, join the shade. Simple as that. Breathing. Steadying. And we too have this, this possibility of just reflecting on those energies when we're unconscious, how we're trapped. When we're conscious, then they become opportunities for us to learn about what pulls us away from our nature, the, the beauty and treasures of our own nature, a source of a pleasing abiding here and now of our own nature, a source of 
when we're steadied in the here and now, a source of being able to see how things actually are, a source of our own wisdom, which can liberate us. So to encourage us, um, and what we're doing, notice that we're widening the field. We're widening the field of our practice. The activity of just bringing the mind back, bringing the mind back, encouraging the mind to be with breathing in, be with breathing out, be with the body, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. That's a samatha practice. It's choosing a peaceful object to steady the mind. But as we're reflecting on what obstructs that, and sometimes when we're doing that, we find ourselves not peaceful, not steady, not gathered. And we can't just battle, 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 blame. It's the heat, it's the rain, it's the... It's the people, it's the teaching, it's the teachers, it's me. I'm just hopeless. Or we can inquire, hey, what's going on here? Ah, it's desire. When I'm starting to get steady, I... I, It's cramped in here. I imagine the, the breeze up on the mountain. I could even find a little indigenous tree up on the mountain, so there's a little shade. I'd have a little shade and a breeze. The Buddha did say practicing in open spaces was good. It's too cramped. So it's a little cocktail of desire and aversion to cramped open space, to cramped open space. But then when we're inquiring, Ah, what's going on here? Ah, we see that. That's not your classical samatha, but that's called vipassana. Could be called vipassana. It's a, it's a reflection on. It's a contemplation of. It's an exploring. It's not as simple as just steadying the mind on one thing. It's well, it's not working. What's going on? Ah, I'm being drawn out. Now, some people make a big deal out of vipassana is this kind of meditation. Samatha is this kind of meditation. You've got to do samatha first and get jhana. Then later you can do vipassana. Or some people say, no, 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 samatha is really a later. Here's what they did before the Buddha. It wasn't really what the Buddha taught. His was about freedom, letting go, breaking through. Samatha is not really what it's about. And anyway, you can get lost in bliss. By the way, I don't know anybody who's just been lost in bliss. I don't know that that's a big problem for Westerners, lost in bliss. But you hear that sometimes. No, no, no. You do the samatha, you get lost in... Uh, I heard of a teacher, he was lost in jhana for 10 years. <laughs> I don't know many people who have that problem. But I guess it's possible. So no, 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 you got to do the vipassana. Arguing about it. And Ajahn Chah would say, don't be ridiculous. The two work together. The Buddha taught that they work together. He said they work in tandem, like two oxen pulling the plow. They work together. 
They need each other. And in fact, there is no samadhi without wisdom. There is no wisdom without steadiness of heart. Remember the jhana factors, which you have on your sheet, that which leads to the first profound level of, of uh, calm is vitaka, bringing the mind, and then vichara. Vichara, guess what that word means? It means explore. It's the word related to vipassana. It's, it's related to exploring. Related to that second factor, uh, second factor of enlightenment called dhamma-vichaya. means exploring interest. So even to enter samadhi, you have to have the two qualities working together. Vitaka is more the samatha type thing. It's more steadying the mind. Vitaka says, come back. Here you are. Breath. Breathing in, breathing out, that's that steady, that's the controlling aspect. It's the steady. Second jhana factor is the, is the wisdom factor, is vichara. It's not just the will to bring your mind that, but then you got to, well, what's here? Let the heart feel it out. That's how, without that, your samadhi is just willful. <gasps> It's like a coiled spring, and you know, if you've got strong will, okay, you can get there. But woe unto the person that gets in your way. Somebody's using a lot of will, they get irritated, just stand back. It's a bit like a grenade, <coughs> blow up. It's all that will. There's not ease, there's not exploring. It's a brittle samadhi. Yes, we need some will to come back. But then also we need the receptive energy, the exploring energy that, like if I want to hold this clock, I can, say, I can say, get back there, look at the clock. But then if you drop it, when you forget about it, get back there. But then if, I, if I'm exploring all the text, ooh, it's cool, it's red, it's got a blinking face. See, the exploring then allows you to find the edges so that you can find the handles where you then can hold on. The two work together. That's why Ajahn Sujito described it as a thumb and a second and an index finger. Any true insight needs enough steadiness of mind to hold it. Like if you're going to have insight into worry, there has to be enough steadiness of mind to stay with it. Hmm, look at that. Then one can get the feeling for this elusive character of worry. And if one's going to have steadiness of mind, one needs some tuning principle, the tuning principle, the adjusting principle. The learning principle is the, is the wisdom aspect. That's why it's vitaka vichara together. So the two work together. So we're practicing and we continue. Let's continue practicing with uh, being here and now, with walking, with sitting, with, uh, with drinking our tea, and try to establish it so that we have an em- embodied presence. Embodied presence, whatever we're doing. How is it now? 
And if we wish using the thought to help us remember to be with what we're doing, to stay connected with what we're doing, pity, to be interested in what we're doing, to be filled with it, to savor it, to relax with what we're doing. And then to notice that if we do start getting hijacked, sometimes all one has to do is just say, oh, not now, when the mind is going off. Sometimes that's just enough. Thank you for that, you know, when the mind is going off, but not now. Sometimes that's just enough. But sometimes it's more, it's more persistent, and, and then that might be, and this is where your intuition comes in. Sometimes then one says, well, let's see what's going on here. So one, rather than just feeling battling and trying to come back, trying to come back, trying to come back, or like if it's a hurricane or a big windstorm, you don't rake leaves in a windstorm. You keep trying to put everything in the right place, and there's this big windstorm. Sometimes you just contemplate the windstorm. So sometimes if it's, for example, if there's this big restlessness or something like that, then one just, ah, oh, what's that? Ah, the mind's agitated here, it's worrying about that, it's jumping over here. Notice the tendency when we're obsessed by it, we're identified with it. It seems so much like me. Oh, gosh, I don't know, it's not seem to be making much progress. Yeah. I knew I probably made a mistake. And then just to, so notice the name, ah, hindrance. Or just even name, worry, restlessness. But to, to just, so, so now we're using a little bit of our steadiness of mind just to recognize it. And then a little bit of the vichara, so the two qualities are still there, just to feel it out. Notice it. It's movement, it's flightiness. So already we're getting some perspective on it. It becomes something that we're just dispassionately exploring, getting to know. Rather than it being so much me, it becomes more nature. Ah, that restless mind, yeah. There is restlessness, there is worry. Hmm. Getting to know that just as the excitement with which uh, Tanissa and I went to, first time went to Umphalozi, the great game park where they save the white rhino. The uh, excitement of being in the wilderness, not knowing what we were going to see. And then, you know, you, you, would, you would come across your first rhino. Just come around a bush and suddenly there this massive thing is right in a mud hole. <sighs> wow covered with mud, but its ears still flicking. Huge power. Wow. Just to explore that. Part of nature. Well, also these, this is nature. This mind of ours is nature. This body of ours is nature. When the heavy state of mind comes, that's stuck in the mud, seems so much like me, any other practice is foolhardy, foolhardy, dangerous even. Even for a moment, can we get a sense of the shape of this big, massive pickup truck of heaviness? 
just get a sense of where do we feel it? In the neck, in the eyes, in the mind. Notice how much easy it is for the mind to be so obsessed. And maybe it is time to rest, but even for a moment, just to start to dispassionately, ah, oh, look, there is heaviness, lethargy, dullness. Hmm. Start to get dispassionate about it. Rather than it being so much me, we realize it's just like seeing the rhino. It's just seeing a function of nature. A state. Who's heavy? For a moment we notice that this heaviness is appearing within to the Buddha. It's appearing to, to that which is aware and awake. And there's sometimes different layers. There's layers. We can get interested in this. Like sometimes there'll be a pain, and then the pain, we're not feeling so good, and aching, and then the aching will, can lead to worrying about it's the meditation's not going right. And we start getting discouraged, and then that's such an unpleasant feeling we get averse to that. And then that makes it then a fantasy of going somewhere else, going to the beach, or a sexual fantasy, or something like that, dislocates us from that pain. And so we're somewhere else. Well, sometimes when we notice desire, if we really investigate that, we'll realize that desire is born of the aversion to this painful situation. It all maybe came from a proliferating thought that came out of the fact that our back is hurting, or our knee is hurting. Hmm. That all gets revealed if we get interested. So again, to underline what Tanisha said last night, it's not a failure to have a... That, that without working with these, there is no wisdom. It's a sharpening stone. It's our teacher. And then to notice when the hindrances subside. Occasionally we'll notice we're not wanting to be somewhere else. It's not desire. Or there's not ill will. Aversion is ill will. It's like the, uh, an illness of the will, as Ajahn Sujito says. Our will, something just doesn't want, is, is ill. Our, our effort, our capacity to give ourselves to things is ill. It's just, we're holding back. We don't want to do it anymore. Just the whole thing, holding back. It's an illness of the will. That can seem so much like me, but the illness of the will is just that. It's a state. It's something that can be recognized. And sometimes we'll notice, oh, there's, there's not an illness of the will. There's not aversion. There's not recoiling. There's not desire. Hmm. We can be right here now. Notice the ease of when we notice the freedom of the others, oh, not 
desire. There's not aversion right now. This is a secret the Buddha gave us in terms of samadhi practice. He said, if we have these five qualities, we're not going to be able to enter samadhi. And he's not talking about the hindrances. He says, if we're not able to withstand the impact of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches, sensations of the body, if we're not able to withstand, then we can't enter samadhi. What does that mean? This is a clue, a very helpful clue. And it brings us to this present moment, the impact. When did the impact of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and body sensations happen? That's always now. It's always in the present moment, a sight, a sound smell, a taste, a sensation in the body. So the inner samadhi, it helps us to learn how to train ourselves just to be with, to learn to be patient with. See, these, these hindrances emerge right at the point of contact. When we're not really mindful, there'll be a, a feeling that we have. We're not really aware of it, and immediately that will give rise to aversion, maybe, or to worry about that feeling. And that being so painful that then to get away from the whole mess, we just desire something else and lift right out of, right out of the situation and already we're on the beach or already we're at a cafe or already we're at the movie. I'd like to see that James Bond movie again because it was so fast. I couldn't quite get all of that stuff. And it's amazing how he always wins. He wins. That's what we need in the world. We need people to win and we're right out of the body and it's a little holiday. And then we come back. Oh God, this place. This body's aching. Right at the point of contact. So the practice of learning to to teach ourselves how to be with sight. That's why metta, the kindness, is helpful for entering samadhi, because that helps us learn to be kind and allowing of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of feeling. So we have permission today to, the, the two oxen work. The, the, some of the time we're more steadying, other time we're inquiring into and exploring, really being interested in these different currents. Doubting, worrying, desiring, not desiring, desiring, and noticing the moments when we're just here. And like Jack, he's almost there. When he gets onto his back, he's in bliss. <sighs> Just to notice when we're, there's nothing obstructing us. Hmm. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. And remember, the in and the out breath is the course I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It is the most gross manifestation of the breath. When you notice it's in and you notice it's out. But actually, actually the element the Buddha is pointing to is called Vayodattu. He's, he's talking about the element, datu, of the air element, the vibratory element. 
which is, is that which vibrates. And it's a part of breathing in and breathing out, but it's also that which brings the vitality of the breath to all the cells of the body. And as we're with the breathing in, for example, in the breathing out, in the short breath, say, if our breathing settles at the nostrils, we might just be noticing breathing in, breathing out. And for a time, if there's not desire, not aversion, we're not obsessed with heaviness or worry or doubt, we're just with that, in, out. Letting the awareness get broader and relaxed, and we might notice that in the in and the out, we notice the sensation of coolness on the in-breath, warmth on the out-breath. Then we might notice that there's a, the sensation, the vibration, the energy of the nose, of the tissue there. This is our contact with the bodies, what we call the chi body, the feeling body, or the breath body. We experience the breath not just as the moving of the breath, but also it's the vibratory body, the energy body, the feeling body. That's the body the Buddha is talking about when, we, when we're sensitive to the whole body. We'll notice the sens- simple sensation. And that sensation is happening whether the breath is in. You breathe in, but the sensation continues. In that pause, you breathe out and the sensation continues. Breathe in, the sensation continues. This subtle feeling of the body is called a nimitta, just a sign. It's another aspect of the breathing, a sign. It's something the the mind can get hold of. What's useful about it is it's more continuous than the in and then waiting around out. That's all right, we can be peaceful. But when, when, we, when we notice a more subtle sign, the uh, awareness can steady itself on that pulsing, on that warmth, on that tingling, steady. And notice it takes us to a deeper, deeper level of steadiness. As we work with Qigong, as we work with meditation, we, this is one of the signs of that, that can take us to a deeper level of samadhi and can help give rise then to the more tangible piti or fullness and sukha ease. Just in case you're happening, the different senses all have subtle signs that nimittas that can arise, that can be natural, that are manifestations of the breath energy. There's that one of the subtle bodily feeling that can permeate through the whole body. Even if you stop breathing, there'll still be that subtle sensation with a subtle breath. You can just be with that. You can explore that if one wishes. Still, within that is the, the, the more gross manifestation of the breath sometimes. In hearing, the subtle nimitta or manifestation of the vibratory energy, the breath energy, is a sound, what our teacher called the sound of silence. He used that a lot. That's a kind of breath meditation. It's a kind of vibratory meditation. Sometimes people hear it, uh, the high frequencies, a very high sound. 
and there's lower frequencies that are more associated with the uh, chakras of the body, like a roar of an ocean. If you hear that, not to be distracted by that, one can, if one wishes, include that, because that's more steady, that roar, that high, like bells, thousands of little glass bells, silver bells. That because it's continuous, that can help steady. I encourage that if you are working with an to still keep the rest of the body around so that it's still embodied. That can all mingle together. The subtle feeling tone, the subtle sound. Sometimes the nimitta associated with the eyes is a, a light might appear or a glow might appear. That's an aspect of the breath energy. One can uh, breathe into that, steady the heart on that. Again, one can mix that with the body. If that's getting one a, a little too confused, if one's starting to get lost in images or something, one can just uh, return uh, with a vitaka, with a directed thought, just back to the more tangible bodily feeling. Subtle feeling, subtle sound, subtle sight. There's even subtle smell and subtle taste, which is more unusual. You can talk about subtle thought, that sometimes when our mind is more composed, thought is more lucid. But what I'm saying is that today we're, we're having time still to, to remember we're blending the samatha vipassana because they work together, the steadying and the inquiring, but we're continuing our training at learning how to be easefully here and now, one step at a time, one breath at a time, exploring if one uh, wishes uh, and giving oneself permission to taste the uh, feeling of stillness and unification of mind. But if we're finding ourselves also at times uh, distracted or challenged, then not to be discouraged by that, but to take the opportunity to to explore the nature, the game park, the wild reserve of, of, uh, of consciousness and how that impacts the body. Really be interested in, in, in how desire works, aversion works, ill will works, worry works. And to explore those, one, one also uses some measure of steadiness, some measure of calm, just to be able to Notice restlessness. So the two are very close. They work together. They're not separate. You still have uh, full permission to... to, um, Trust your own wisdom as far as the schedule. If one needs to rest, then it's okay to rest. You know. But just try to, to be sensitive to what's happening. And to, to um, I'll finish with the image of our effort. It's taking effort to practice. There's not just one gear at practice. Real practice is not just this 
yang crunching through everything. That might be the image, and it's useful to know that if we have an image of what real practice is, wrapping ourselves into full lotus and just not moving, whatever. Maybe we have that. But real practice is, is really responding wisely to each moment. As our teacher Ajahn Chah said, don't pretend you have a ten-wheeler truck when you have a wheelbarrow. Sometimes we don't have the capacity. And we can then notice if there's exhaustion. Check out what it feels like. Notice and then, then wisely make a decision to go rest. And then notice the effect of that. Notice if we decide to go rest and suddenly we're full of energy. <sighs> mm, that's interesting. So the image the Buddha gave for practice is that it's not just one, one thing, not just one quality of effort, that we tune our effort. He had a keen disciple who was practicing really hard, walking, walking, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, walked so hard his feet started to bleed. He pushed harder, he pushed harder to get enlightened. He wanted just to be done with it, be done with this birth and death. Walking, walking, walk, feet bleeding, feet bleeding, and then finally he just realized it just, it's just too much and he's thinking, I can't do it. He came from a wealthy family. His name was Sonan, so he thought, look, I'll go back to my wealthy family. It's too hard for me. I enjoy myself, but with my wealth, I'll make good, do good things, make gifts, create a lot of merit for the future, and then my next life, I'll do this. And so the Buddha read his mind, and the Buddha appeared to him and said, Sona, is this what you were thinking? The Buddha could also see the blood, bloody track. And Sona said, yes, it's just too hard, I'm, and, uh, and I would like to do good next life, uh, do good now and meditate next life. And the Buddha said, well, didn't you used to play a stringed instrument called the vina, which is like a lute? And Sona said, yes, I did. And the Buddha said, well, what, was, what kind of sound did it make when the string was... Uh, too taut, too tight. He said, it squeaked. It's not a nice sound. And the Buddha said, what kind of sound did it make when it was too loose? Did it make good music? And uh, Sona said, no, Lord, it didn't make good music. And the Buddha said, what about when you tune it just right? Tune it. And Sona said, no, it made a nice sound. The Buddha said, pick up your theme of meditation and in the same way tune, tune your efforts. So we're tuning. Sometimes more effort, sometimes less effort. Tuning. That's why Vipassana Samatha work together. It's not just one gear. It's not just one thing. So let's use this time well. <laughs>